We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 6 through 10. Exodus chapter 6 through 10 as we continue our study together. We've been walking through the life of Moses. It's been an incredible opportunity for me to study this incredible man's life. We said at the beginning that no single man in history has made a greater impact on the world other than Jesus Christ besides Moses. And so as we've walked through his life together, we find ourselves now at this critical juncture, this critical passage. And I know what some of you are thinking. I asked you to turn and I said chapters 6 through 10. I did not say verses 6 through 10. I said chapters 6 through 10. And I can see the look on some of your faces because when I said that, some of you are thinking right now because I can see it like little windows into your souls. You're thinking, I've heard him preach for 45 minutes on two verses. We're in for it if he's going to preach that many chapters. And I just want to just, let me just tell you this. You will not be here past 2 o'clock today. Um, So we're just going to buckle down and and we're going to be on a ride today. And yes, it's going to be a little different because we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to cover a lot of territory. But as studying this, I think it's really important because I want you to see this today in some broader strokes pictures. I want us to, to look at the plagues of Moses and to understand them maybe in a way that we haven't ever understood them before. You know, there are times in life when we enter into fights. When we enter into battles, when we enter into contests, whether that be on the sporting field or just generally in life, but every now and then, we enter into one, and it's one that we ought to know that we're going to lose. It's one that we ought to know that we're going to lose. You can sometimes look and see that there are just times when there is an opponent who is overmatched. As we walk, as we open up to Exodus chapter 6, nothing could be more true. If anyone should have known they were overmatched and there was no possibility of them winning the fight they were about to get into, it was Pharaoh. But what we find out and what we've already been told up until this point is that Pharaoh was going to be hard-hearted. Pharaoh was going to be stubborn. Pharaoh was going to be foolish. And he was going to attempt to take on the Almighty. You'll remember that last week we found ourselves in Exodus chapter 5 and we saw that keeping a godly perspective even when negative circumstances are taking place in our life, that that we were able to see that there's power in the decisions that we make, the reality of spiritual warfare, the pain of leadership, the blessing of obedience, and even we talked about the questions of life, how and why. But today what we're going to see is that we serve the God who is above all gods. If you notice in the title that there is a big G at the front and a little g at the end. That we serve the God who is above all gods. And that the Lord will bring uncompromising judgment as well as merciful deliverance. 
So the way that we're going to approach this in just a moment is we're going to read the first few verses of Exodus chapter 6 together, and then we're going to have a seat, and then we're going to talk about the implications of everything that takes place over the next few chapters. And my prayer is for you that as we walk through these things together, that not only will you read them and look at them over the next few moments, but that you'll go back this week and you'll truly study and get into the details of these passages, because as you see in just a moment, the overview that we're about to see is that God refuses to allow glory to go to another, that God refuses to lose, that God is the only God, and that being stubborn and hard-hearted and foolish before Him is a loser's battle. So let's discover that together as we stand and read the Word of God. Exodus chapter 6. You'll remember that at the end of chapter 5, Moses has come before the Lord and his heart is broken and he has asked the Lord, why has trouble come upon this people? Why have you even sent me? Why have you sent me to speak in front of Pharaoh when you are not going to rescue your people at all? And then all of a sudden, it's Moses' time to be quiet. It's Pharaoh's time to be quiet. And it's God's turn to speak. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they didn't listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. And the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Lord, we bow before you now as the God above all gods. Lord, teach us that you bring uncompromising judgment and merciful deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated? All right, let's start at 6.12 and work our way backwards. Then we're going to work, work our way forward. In chapter 6, verse 12, Moses asks a question. After God has declared, I am the Lord, I am going to do these things. In fact, if you see, starting there in 6.1, he begins to tell him, he says, I will do it, I will do, I will bring, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take, I will give. He is making the point. Verse 2, 
I am the Lord. And just because you haven't seen that redemption, just because you haven't seen that deliverance doesn't mean you're not going to see it. In fact, Moses, I told you it was going to be like this. You shouldn't be so surprised because I told you that Pharaoh was going to harden his heart. It's all part of my sovereignty. It's all part of my plan. It's all part of what was going to take place from the very beginning. You see, nothing in this passage has surprised the Lord yet. Moses' reluctance hasn't surprised the Lord. Pharaoh's hard heart hasn't surprised the Lord. And so as we get to this passage and we find ourselves at the very end, Moses comes to the Lord and he says, if the Israelites won't even listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? If you go back to the end of chapter 5, you saw that Moses has already had his doubts. Why did you even bring us here if you weren't going to deliver? I've gone before Pharaoh and I've made an embarrassment of myself and now I've made it harder on the people and now not only does Pharaoh hate me, but all of the people hate me because their work's gotten harder because of it. But if we go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 2, after the first declaration, do you remember that Moses said, let my people go? Pharaoh asked a question. Do you remember what that question was? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? So what we're going to see take place over the next few chapters and over the next few moments of our time together is God's answering of that question. Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? He's going to answer Moses' question. Why have you brought us here if you're not going to deliver? And he's further going to answer Moses' question. Why would they listen to me? Because I'm a man who speaks with faltering lips. So over the next few verses and over the next few chapters, we are going to see what God will do. And we're going to see what God, how God is going to answer those questions. But before we see how God answers those questions, you need to see what God is calling on Moses to do and what he's calling on Israel to do and what he's calling on the church to do and by the way, what he's calling on you to do. You see, because in the midst of Moses' trials, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the pain, God never said that it was going to be easy. Yet some of us think, whether it's in high school or junior high or whether it's in our working life, somehow we've bought into the deception that the Lord said that it was going to be easy and he never said that. He said it's going to be worth it, not that it's going to be easy. So sometimes in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the trials, it is easy for people like you and people like me to start doubting, well, maybe it is that we're not following the Lord. Well, it may be that you're not following the Lord, but just because you're going through difficulty or hard times does not mean that that is the reason why you're not following the Lord. In fact, if we understand this scripture and so many others like it, what we know is that sometimes God not only allows the hard times, but sometimes by His sovereignty, God actually orchestrates the hard times. And He had predicted that that was going to take place in these few verses and what was going to take place with the Israelite people. And so when we come before a passage like this and we ask, before the deliverance, before the plagues, before the crossing of the Red Sea, what do we do in the meantime in our lives before it seems like there is some miraculous intervention? How do we get sometimes from point A to point B? In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, we find a very clear answer. It's Moses' answer, it's the church's answer, and it's our answer today. Let us keep our eyes on Jesus. Can I tell you what your flesh wants you to do? Can I tell you what the world wants you to do? Can I tell you what Satan wants you to do? 
It is to spend every moment of your time focusing on your problems. To become so, to have such ingrown eyeballs that you are so selfish in thinking about everything going on in your life that all you do is think about what's wrong. All you do is think about the issues and the worries and the stress and the anxieties and the things that are around you. And friends, I want to tell you that is a trap because not only will that not help anything, it will actually exacerbate your problems and make them worse. And so the thing for Moses, the thing for you and I, is that we need to lift ourselves up out of the muck and the mire and place our foot upon the rock and set our eyes upon the altar and perfecter of our faith and recognize that instead of letting the problems define us, instead of letting the situation define us, instead of letting the stress define us, instead of letting the depression define us, instead of letting the relationships define us, instead of letting the addictions define us, we look towards Him. And when we look towards Jesus, we start finding some answers because now the answers are going to come in waves. Chapters 7 through 10. Now I want to tell you that we're going to talk about these plagues, but I'm going to save the last plague for next week. So you've got to come back. But this week in particular, I want you to understand these plagues and I want you to understand them in a way that for years I never understood them. You see, I thought the plagues were just kind of haphazard. That God said, well, let me try this one, and if this one doesn't work, I'll try another one. And, and I, I, I didn't really know that there was an order to them, that there was a, a reason that they happened the way that they happened. So I want to give you an overview over the next few moments, but I think that the overview that you're going to see is going to help you to understand exactly what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2. Some of you remember that Paul said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against what, church? It is against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, if you haven't been listening yet so far, I, I need you to come in close because I, I'm about to make a statement that goes against everything in our culture. Everything that sets itself against the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus or the gospel is demonic. Now, follow me on this. That means that every false religion is from Satan. Every cult is from Satan. Every false religion is from Satan. Every religion that doesn't profess Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world, God's only Son, risen from the grave, and that salvation is only through Him is demonic in origin. You say, well, wait a minute, are you talking about people that worship Satan? Well, certainly, but I'm telling you every religion, every religion that sets itself up against the knowledge of God is satanic in origin. Now, the reason that's important for this passage is this. When God delivers those plagues, it is because of the Egyptians' theology or the Egyptians worship practices. You see the Egyptians had about 80 major gods and goddesses. About 80. Now they had some sub-gods, whatever, however you want to understand that. But major gods and goddesses, they had about 80. But of those 80, they were broken down into three parts. Those gods were worshipped because one set of gods was a god, were the gods of the Nile because the Nile was what brought everything to Egypt. Without the Nile, Egypt couldn't have existed. So you had your gods of the Nile, category one. You had your gods of the land, 
category two, and then category three, you had your gods of the sky or your gods of the sun. So every one of those gods and goddesses fits somewhere into those three categories. Now, when you understand those three categories, you start understanding the order of the plagues and how they came against every false religion that was taking place in Egypt. And it was God showing the people that they had absolutely no hope but God himself and proving the hard-hearted, foolish, stubborn Pharaoh and every Egyptian that you can bow your knee to any other little g-god besides the Lord and there is no hope, no redemption, and no deliverance. Now, as we study this together, we're, I want to I break those down and I want us to better understand that. Now, let's talk about specifically the, the two plagues that we have that are against the river. The flood of blood and the, blood, and the plague of frogs. Now, we'd already seen that Moses is gone, and you can remember the staff that he's been given. And the staff turns into a snake, and if some of you have already read into chapter 7, 8, and 9, you know that there were some sorcerers or some magicians who were able to replicate some of these plagues. Not all of them, but some of them. They were able to replicate the snake, right? They were able to replicate the first couple of plagues. And some of you may be asking yourselves, how in the world were they able to do that? Was that some trick, or, 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 or what was the reason behind that? What did I just get through telling you was behind every single world religion that is not attributed to the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's satanic. So it is by satanic or demonic powers that you see the replication of some, not all, of the miracles that are performed by God. But the first two that you see are the miracle of blood, where he turns the Nile River into blood, and then the plague of frogs, which the frogs came from the Nile River. The reason that being important, besides just how purely disgusting those two plagues are, can you imagine that every drop of water that came out of the faucet, that everything in every river, that every pond, that every lake was filled with blood? And then you look up, and the next plague, everywhere there are frogs everywhere. We're not talking about that there are just a few here and there, that the homes were filled with frogs, the stench of frogs, and they're everywhere. It is not by accident that those two plagues were the ones that happened first and that they happened together. And the reason we know that is this. There, was a, there were three gods by the name of Osiris, Num, and Hopi. And they were the Egyptian gods of the Nile. They were supposed to control the river's flow, and they were supposed to control all of the animals of the Nile. So God attacks the Nile first, first with blood, then with frogs. And when those things happen, we see there's almost an irony, right? Because the Egyptians, they're able to come, and they're able to reproduce the miracle, right, of the frogs. And so there's more frogs. You say, well, where's the irony there? God had already produced the frogs. They didn't need more frogs. They needed less frogs. So now they've just compounded their problem, and yet they have no power to be able to get rid of them. And so God comes in full force and says, in the midst of what's taking place, where is Osiris? Where is Noom? Where is Hopi? And by the way, they actually had a god named Hecate. And they worshipped Hecate, and they took and they went and they placed a frog's head 
on this false idol's body and they bowed down to the frog god who was named Hecate. So in the midst of the blood, in the midst of the frogs, it is God saying, where are your gods of the Nile? Where is your frog god now? Because he has absolutely no power over what you're seeing me do. But it, even then, you would think that anybody with any sense, anybody who had not been turned over to a depraved mind and a wicked soul, anybody who wasn't hard-hearted and stubborn, would have at this moment given their lives over to God. But that's not what happened. Because we had the crimes against the river. But now, what, what do we see takes place next? We have against the land. We have the plagues of gnats, the plagues of insects, the plagues of, plagues of diseased livestock, and the plagues of boils. Now, just quickly, how disgusting. I mean, we're South Mississippi folk, right? We know a little something about a, a mosquito, We've been to South Louisiana. We know a little something about gnats. But can you imagine not being able to take a step, not being able to take a breath, that they're in your ears and they're in your eyes and they filled your nose and every time you open your mouth that it's filled with mosquitoes and it's filled with gnats and you can't get away from them and they're swarming so thick that you can't see through the insects. And as if those plagues weren't enough, you look up and your livestock is diseased and your livestock is dying. And then after that, you, you look down and, and as if everything that had taken place wasn't enough, now you're broken out with boils and sores and all over your body. And you're beginning to see, hopefully by now, what God is doing. But you need to know that in Egypt, there was a God by the name of Geb. And Geb was the God that protected the Egyptians from insects. So if you'll excuse my English on this, it was as if God was telling the people, where you at, Geb? Where you at? Here's what I've done and what you're supposed to be able to do, and you can't even control this. Where was Apis? Apis was the Egyptian bull god. He was the god that was supposed to be over livestock and over agriculture, yet the boils had broken out over them, and all of the livestock was sick. And then we find again something incredibly ironic, because as you read about the, this plague of boils, if you read and study that passage, you'll see that Aaron takes soot from the fire and he throws it into the air. Now, in Egyptian worship, their priest would actually go to the fire and they would take and continually throw soot up into the air, all casting into the air, clouds of soot everywhere. And the reason that they did that is the people would then run up underneath these clouds and they would hope that even if just a particle of soot from this holy fire, if that particle of soot fell on them, they saw that as a blessing. So what does Aaron do? God takes their very worship and says, why don't you come get some of this soot? And when Aaron throws it into the air, when it falls on them, what they had always thought was a blessing now falls on them as the curse and the judgment of God and boils break out on their body. And as we study it, what the Lord is showing and what the Lord is teaching us is that there is no other God. Where was Imhotep? He was the god of the Egyptian healing sciences, the, the god of medicine. Yet, he 
he could not provide? Where was Thoth? He was the God of wisdom and of knowledge. Where was Sekhmet? He was the Egyptian God with the power to be able to remove epidemics and yet all the people are sick. And it is if God is systematically going through their gods and going through these diseases and going through the diseases that affect the Nile and affect the land and now the ones that affect the sky. There was the plague of hail and lightning, the plague of locust, and the plague of darkness. You need to know that in Egypt, hail never falls. And it only rains about two inches a year. So as it begins to hail and the hail falls down, you can picture the Egyptians because they would have all assembled together and they would have been calling out to a god named Shu. Shu was the god of the atmosphere. And they would have been calling on Shu, please Shu, make the rain and make the hail stop falling. Make the lightning stop. But God is showing them that Shu has always been and will forever be powerless. They would have called out when the locusts were covering the land. They would have called out to their sky goddess. Their sky goddess is the only one I believe that is aptly named. Their sky goddess was named Nut. And they would call out to Nut, please help us, Nut. Please clear the atmosphere. Clear out the lightning and, and clear out the hail and clear this out. But Nut had no power. Where was Nephet, the goddess of grain? Where was Men, the god of the harvest? And then we get to the last plague before the plague on the firstborn. And it would have been the one that would have been considered the most severe to Egypt. Now, I'm thinking if I've seen a river turned into blood and I've seen these gnats and I've seen bulls and livestock dying and everything that we've talked about, that this might not have been what I would think would have been the most severe plague. But in Egypt, this was the most severe plague because it was an affront to who they saw as their most supreme God. You need to know that in Egypt... The number one God, the number one God of all the 80, of all 80, was a God by the name of Ra. And Ra was known as the sun God. And so when the world goes dark, when there is no morning, when there is no day, when it is so black that you can't see your hand in front of their face, they would have called out and thought, well, even if every other god of Egypt cannot answer, certainly Ra, certainly our sun god can make the sun shine on this. And they called out hour after hour and day after day, and it remained dark. Because unless the Lord turns the earth on its axis, unless He commands the sun to shine, there is no tomorrow and there is no day and outside of the almighty you would forever be in a dark pit of eternal darkness because there is no Ra nor any other religion across the world that can offer you the hope of the light of life because his name is Jesus Christ and he will not share his glory with another and so from these plagues we come together and quickly, I want, to see, I want you to see that four things jump, out of, jump off the page of this passage. Number one, Moses would be given tablets to write on a little while later, and we're going to, to get there eventually in our study together. But the very first commandment he would be given to write on these tablets was Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, and it is the number one point that we should get out of this whole narrative, and it is this. You shall have no other gods before me. In Isaiah 42, 8, 
He says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Now it may not be that, that like the Egyptians, we may not be polytheistic in the traditional sense of the term. But in a world that is full of secularism, in a world that is full of humanism, in a world that is full of materialism, I can tell you, we are a people that are tempted by other gods. And the reason I know that is it is people that call themselves Christian still try to find their solace and still try to find their hope and still find to try to find their security in so many other things. And every now and then, it's not on your best days, it's in your worst days when God picks those things out just like He did the gods of Egypt and He has shown some of you because of His grace that whatever it was that you've chased wouldn't satisfy. He's shown you that you've been to that idol to try to find your security and try to find that hope and you've been to that relationship and you've been to that addiction and you've been to that place and you've thought that somehow that was going to provide for you what it needed and all of a sudden you found yourself empty and it's because he allowed the plague and void of that emptiness to fall on you. You will have no other gods before him. Number two. Number two. Don't be fooled. There is no compromise with God. There is no compromise with God. That's the whole narrative. Pharaoh wanted compromise. He, Moses comes before him, let my people go. He says, no, plagues come. Pharaoh goes up and he wants to negotiate. Well, why don't we let some people go, but not the livestock? Or why do you have to let the women and children go? Or you can go for a few days, but you can't go forever. And he keeps coming back to Moses with these compromises. And I really believe that we need to hear this today because there's so many people that they want to be saved, that they want a relationship with God so they can know that they're going to heaven, but they don't want to submit their lives to the Lord. They want to compromise. They want to say, God, you can have some of me. I'll give you two Sunday mornings a month, but you can't have Friday and Saturday nights. You can have some of my finances, but you can't have all of them. You can have some of my relationship, but you can't have all of my relationship. You can have some of my attitude, but not all of my attitude. And somehow we have fallen under the delusion that God wants to come to the table with you like this is some kind of used car deal. Well, I'll give you this. No, I'm not taking that. Will you take this? No, I won't take that. Will you take this? And we're going back and forth hoping that God somehow is going to take our negotiation. God's not going to negotiate with you. You're not God. He has no reason to negotiate with you when He's almighty. And so when we come before Him, we need to understand there is no compromise with God. And some of us have been trying for years to fight with Him or to compromise with Him, and it's no different than Pharaoh. The Bible says that is stubborn, that that is hard-headed, that that is foolish. So let me ask you a question. Just being real. Let's get to the point. How much more would God have to do to convince you to quit playing around with Him? Some of you ought to be dead, but He's rescued you. Some of you have 
been shown grace after grace after grace. Mercy after mercy after mercy. His patience and kindness have led you to repentance over and over and over again. Yet you've been hard-hearted and you've been foolish. And some of you have experienced the judgments of God. And you know they're the judgments of God. Because you've chosen sin and yet you've walked into it. And you've had to live with the consequences of that. And yet still you want to be foolish and hard-hearted. And I would tell you that there is a time in which God's patience will run out. There's no compromise with God, which leads us to our third point. God's judgment will come. God's judgment's going to come. It came to Egypt. He told them and he warned them. And if you don't do what I tell you to, these plagues are going to fall on you. And God has never lied. He has kept his word every single time. And by the way, when he judges, he does a thorough job. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before Him. Hebrews 10, 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So let me just be real honest with you today. These plagues, do they, are they, do they disgust you? Do they bother you? Just thinking about blood running out of your faucets and up through your toilets and out of your showers, does that disgust you? Does breathing in mosquitoes and gnats, does that bother you? Does your body breaking out in boils, does that disgust you? Does the land being covered in darkness where you cannot see your hand in front of your face, does that mess you up a little? When you read through these plagues, If you die trying to compromise with a holy God, the plagues of Egypt will be nothing compared to what will be doled out on you, not just for a period of time, not just for days, but when 10,000 years have passed. You know in Amazing Grace, we says we will have no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. When 10,000 years have passed, if you find yourself in hell, you will have no less days to experience the wrath of God than when your soul enters it on day one. Now that is a hard truth. That is a hard truth about the reality of what takes place for those who die unforgiven and the wrath of God falls on them. God's judgment will come. But number four, number four, God's blessing is as sure as His judgment. God's blessing is just as sure as His judgment. The bright side is though there are no other gods to provide salvation, that no Egyptian God, no Muslim God, no Hindu God, no Christian science God, no Mormon God, no Jehovah's Witness God, no atheist God, no secularist God, no materialist God, no other God and no other religion can provide salvation. And to some people that sounds like bad news. But here's the good news. There is a God who does provide salvation. You don't need any other God. You don't need a sun God. You don't need a Hindu God. You don't need a Muslim God. You don't need any other God because you know the one God and His name is Jesus Christ. You know that God. And there is salvation that is found through Him. There is no compromise with God. This whole world has gone crazy 
because they will call us intolerant and bigoted because we say there's only one way to heaven. We're not telling you you can't go. We're just telling you there's only one way you can go. I don't understand. It's not that someone's telling you you can't be saved. It's just telling you that there is only one way which you can be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man gets to the Father but by me. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than the name of King Jesus. You've got to repent. And you've got to give your life to Him. As sure as His judgment has come, so will His blessing on His people to Israel and to the church. As I was preparing this message, there is a little verse tucked into a little book in the middle of the Minor Prophets that kept coming up in my mind over and over again. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. Habakkuk cries this prayer. O Lord, in Your wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. As we think about it in lights of what's taking place here in Exodus, the wrath has been poured out. But in the midst of that wrath being poured out, He provided an escape. And we're going to get to that escape in just a few weeks because the escape would go through the Red Sea. And friends, by the way, there was only one escape. It wasn't around the Red Sea. It was through the Red Sea, and that was the only path that the people were given to take, but they were given a path. But in the midst of His judgment, there was also deliverance, and there was also redemption. And in wrath, God did remember mercy, but let's fast forward. You say, Larry, I can't. I can't experience the wrath of God. I, I can't go through that. I, I can't deal with that. That, that, that. that can't fall on me. Praise God, that's the Holy Spirit that's convincing you of that. And I want you to understand something, and I want you to understand it clearly. If you go to hell, it won't be God's fault. It will be your fault. And the reason that hell will be your fault is that over 2,000 years ago, on a trash pile called Golgotha, God sent His only begotten Son, and He was crucified by His hands and His feet to a tree. And He was placed there, and for six hours, the wrath of God was poured out on Him. And the reason we know that is that Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because in his wrath he remembered mercy. But the only way he could do that is because all of that wrath that was deserved for you so that every plague would fall on your soul, that every bit of that wrath fell on the person of Christ while he was on the cross. Now, friends, for those people that would say, there's got to be another way. What an insult to the glory and the beauty of the Most High King when He is saying, I have given you a way and it was by me pouring out my wrath on my only begotten Son that if you would believe on Him, you wouldn't have to experience the wrath of God, but you would have eternal life and eternal blessing. How dare we ever be a people that think we could compromise with the Holy One? However dare we be a people that think there could ever be another way 
when if you would repent and give your life to Jesus Christ, then you could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the plagues aren't meant for you, that the wrath is not meant for you, that hell is not meant for you. But friends, we know that in wrath, he has remembered mercy. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And friends, when we do that, we are lifted up out of the mire of the plagues of our circumstances and the plagues of hell. And our fate has been placed upon a solid rock and he puts a new song in our mouth. It is not a song in which we cry out because of the problems and the issues that we have, but it is a song that we sing out because of his great and glorious grace. And we praise him for doing what only he can do because Jesus Christ is our God above all gods. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.